Today, my guest is Professor Ronaldo Parente. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Ronaldo as a person. Professor Parente is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally, is a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Parente is a senior editor for the International Journal of Emerging Markets and an associate editor for the Cross-Cultural Strategic Management Journal. He serves on the editorial review boards of JEBS, Thunderbird International Business Review, Global Strategy Journal, Cross-Cultural Management Journal, and the Journal of International Management. He is one of the vice presidents of the Ibero-American AOM. He served as an elected board member for the European International Business Association and served at various roles at SMS. He chaired and organized two SMS special conferences in Brazil, uh, the 2018 SMS conference in Sao Paulo and 2011 SMS conference in Rio. He received the prestigious Serea de Ouro, uh, I hope I said it right, the Golden Mermaid Trophy in 2006, International Award in Brazil, and was a finalist for the Farmer Best Dissertation Award at AIB in 2004. Thank you, Ronaldo, for joining us. Thank you, guys, for inviting me. Uh, Ronaldo, uh, what did you want to become when you were a child? Uh, I wanted to be a guitar player in a rock band or a professional surfer. <laughs> it did not happen. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, for how really, long? Did you... I, I, uh, I, that's what I want to be. I want to be a guitar player in a rock band. And then I started surfing when I was seven years old. So, uh, right in the beginning of the surfing thread, thread in Brazil, and I was dreaming about Hawaii, California, and going to become a professional surfer. It, wasn't, it ended up that I never learned how to play guitar. I could. I tried several times. I'm trying now. I have a guitar here that I'm trying again for the 10th time. It's still terrible at it. Uh, and the surf, I did surf and I still surf, but uh, I was never very good for, for that. <laughs> uh, when did you realize there was an international uh, world out there? Can you pinpoint the earliest moments uh, between uh, domestic well, well, Brazil? Being, being from Brazil, anything, when you said the word international, you know, this was, uh, I grew up and I was a kid in the 70s. So in the 70s, uh, growing up in Brazil, we, anything that happened in the US would take about a month to get to Brazil, anything. So it was, Brazil was a very close economy. And so information, everything was very close. It was a dictatorship. And being foreigner means being from the US. That's why, you know, being in America is, was the farthest that we can think of international. And, and we follow being a surf, like I said, I surfed since I'm seven years old. I live right on the beach in Rio. And being a surfing, uh, there was something that caught my attention, my friend's attention when I was a kid, there was the Z-Boys in California. The Z-Boys in California was those guys uh, doing skateboard in this empty swimming pools uh, in the 70s. And they were mm -hmm. surf team. And then we would we'd fight for magazines that come from the US showing Gary Lopp surfing in Hawaii, the big waves, perfect waves of those tubes. And, and that was a dream. You know, we, we lived, you know, we wait like six months for a movie that was shown here to, to get to Brazil. Six months, almost one year later. And then when the movie gets there in Super 8 format, 
we all get together, we're watching, we're amazed by those pipeline surfers and the Z boys in the pools. Yeah. So that, that was my awareness. It was, uh, for me, the world was composed of Brazil, US, and US, I mean California and Hawaii, and the rest of the world. That's it. <laughs> Interesting. Um, how about uh, academia? How did you choose academia? How did you end up? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting story because that's my third, uh, third profession. I'm a, I'm a trained as an engineer and I work as an engineer many years designing buildings and things. I work as an engineer. Then I, I started working very early. I'm 18 years old. I start in a serious job. I, I pass in a, in a competitive exam to join a government development bank of Brazil, which was a very good job at the time. And I build, build, I went to the engineer department building. Um, uh, from there, uh, I decided to do something more in line with banking and I start switching to finance. And I became financial analyst and risk management analyst. Uh, I worked in, in missions with the Inter, Inter Development Bank of World Bank and the Inter American Bank of Development uh, for you know, sanitations in Brazil, big development projects in Brazil. And then I decided to get an MBA in finance. I, got, I came here to get an MBA with a concentration in finance. And after the concentration in finance, I went back to Brazil and a friend of mine started inviting me to, since you got a master's degree, why don't you teach a course here in corporate finance? I said, okay. So I went to teach as adjunct professor in the local university. And that, bug, that bite me. And, and from that on, all I want to do is teaching. And I, I was doing part-time teaching and full-time something that I didn't like very much. So I started applying for the PhD. After third year applying, I finally got a scholarship and I came to Temple University. And I got accepted as a finance major, uh, finance risk management. I was a risk management major with a minor in finance in Temple. And then the second semester, I went to see a lecture by Mike Kotabi, Masako Kotabi, which is a big IB scholar, uh, was the president of AIB. And he was, uh, he had just joined Temple University and he gave a lecture and I, I decided to go see it. And then I fell in love with IB and I started talking to him to make a long story short. Uh, Mike Kotabi became my dissertation advisor, my, one of my best friends, mentor, friend, almost like a father figure to me. And we still in touch until now. He's, I think he just retired, uh, but uh, he's, he was a guy who guided me through the process. Uh, and, and then I switched major. I switched to IB strategy, to the department where he was. Um, was uh, that's how I became a scholar. <laughs> and believe it or not, when I came to get a PhD, I thought only about teaching. I'm gonna get a PhD, go back to Brazil and teach. I never really thought about doing research. Michael Stark was the one who told me this is about research and we have to, to resolve those complex issues and research questions. And then I start falling in love and, and the rest is history. Interesting. Uh, what's something uh, that is not on your CV that people might find interesting? The find is that I love radical sports. I, I surf, I windsurf, I kite surf, I, I skateboard, I did all that in my life. Today, the only two I'm still doing is the surfing, kite surfing. Um, and uh, nobody knows, but I was like, the, I used to compete in windsurfing, in wave windsurfing. 
uh, when you do, you jump like 30 feet in the air and flip over and come back. I used to do that when I was 18, 17 years old. And I competed all over Brazil and I was like ranked number three in Brazil for practical surfing. That's very good, actually. Yeah. That's very good. It's not in my resume. <laughs> okay. Uh, actually, this next question is quite, uh, going to be quite interesting. Um, if you stopped what you're doing today and you could uh, start all over from scratch on a new trajectory, a new path, a second, actually, in your case, a third, uh, a third best alternative, what, 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 would be, what would you do? You know, that, that's a question because I always keep thinking how my life would be if I had to take that track. When I was, um, when I was 18, 19 years old, uh, I had the opportunity to open a surf shop, okay? In, in the city, because uh, we moved to Rio de Janeiro, to, to Fortaleza in the north, that was very underdeveloped and there was no surf shops and no wax, nothing. So, I got there and I decided to open a surf shop and I started the process of opening a surf shop. And um, what happened And I took the competitive exam for the bank and I passed. So my father said, you can't open a surf shop. I won't help you open a surf shop. Now you have a real job that's safe and secure. So I never opened a surf shop. The guy who opened this, then the guy who opened the surf shop, the same place I opened and that become a very successful guy who owned several shops all over Brazil, very successful. And if, if I had to do anything else today, if I, I can't teach anymore, I probably would open a surf shop, a water sports shop, to be in touch with young athletes and have the old guys come in and talk about the stories of their life in surfing, and then be a meeting place and be around the, the water and the sports all the time. That's what I'll do. <laughs> uh, regrets? Have you got any regrets other than this one? Other what? Other than the surf shop uh, experience. Do you have any regrets? The regrets? Uh, regrets. Uh, yeah, yeah my, my regret is that I not realized that life was so short when I was young. Mm. <laughs> I never realized life was short. And now with the pandemic, I lost a lot of friends my age. I lost my father. Uh, and personally, a big regret is not having to spend more time with my parents. Uh, my mother has Alzheimer's now, doesn't recognize me. My father passed from COVID. Uh, and life is short, you know, and now I'm going to be 60 years old. I'm 59, I'm going to be 60 in July. And, uh, you know, you look back and you say, wow, this went very fast. And there's still so many things I had, I could do it. And another thing that I would do it, I would never start working so early, like 18 years old as I started. And I was locked in that, that bank position. I, uh, and that prevented me from taking a lot of surf trips and travel to places like Bali, Hawaii with friends. Um, and I didn't do it. And now I'm trying to do it, but now I have family, kids, and, and it's always a complication. So personally, that would be my regret. And professionally, I regret that I didn't start an academic right from out, out of college <clears throat> because mm. it took me many years. Uh, I was 37 years old when I started my PhD. You know, so, okay. and I, I pretty much, I pretty much restart my life. I, I moved from Brazil to here. I sold everything I had in Brazil. Then through my PhD, I went to a major exchange rate uh, discrepancy. I pretty much lost everything I had. And I was well off financially in Brazil. Uh, and then when I finished my PhD, I was totally broke. I started over again at 43 years old uh, with the family, two kids, uh, only money to everybody 
banks, credit cards, everything. It was not easy, but uh, so, but I don't regret that I did. I think I made the right move. What I regret is not having done early. <laughs> sure, sure, I understand. Uh, what did you learn from your biggest failure? My biggest failure, uh, well, what, are my, what is my biggest failure? Let's see. I don't, I don't take myself as a guy that did many failures, but uh, maybe one failure that I consider is never have learned guitar. <laughs> but, I, but I think you need to keep trying. I bought a guitar here. Look, electric guitar here. <laughs> bought a software and I practice every day, but I never learn. It's something that it's, it's just hard for me, but I keep trying. I, I persist. In. Uh, I'm persistent on that. That's one of the biggest failures of my life, not being able to, to play guitar. And my son plays, my, my daughter plays, and I don't. But uh, uh, I think, I think uh, you can take from any, any failure that you have is that it's an opportunity to learn and to do it better. Okay, great. Uh, Ronaldo, let's say you're stranded in a uh, surf shop. <laughs> I don't know how you get uh, stranded in a surf shop, but let's say you're among surfers. They don't know who you are uh, and they are curious about you. And you say, I'm a professor. How do you explain your research to people who don't read your work regularly? And why, why, why is your uh, work important? Well, the, the first phase of my research, which was my dissertation, and I did for until I got tenure, and I still do a little bit of it, but I was very focused, was very easy to explain because a lot of my friends, especially Brazilian, tend to like South Americans like cars. And I focus a lot on the automotive industry, on global supply chain systems, looking at modularity and how modularity will allow for co-design, co-location, things like that. Um, and was something that me and Michael Tab were very interested together. And we did publish papers on that. And we, I actually made a name for that. Believe it or not, I haven't done a modularity paper for a while. And just the other day, I got a paper from Thunderbird International Review on modularity for me to review. <laughs> and uh, so people still see modularity and they, they send papers to me. Um, so, but, but if you had to explain for people that don't know what it is, I'd like to say that, you know, what I do is try to, uh, learn how to solve complex problems in the, in the world. You know, we live in a very complex world uh, that things that happen all the time. We have disruption in more than now more than ever. We have all this disruption technological, the pandemic, and this creates uh, an environment that is very complex. It's hard to make decisions. And I like to say that uh, if you like to resolve complex problems, come up with solution for complex problems, get a PhD and then you're always gonna find some problems. <laughs> you may never solve, but you may never solve the problem, but you're always trying. And that's what keeps you going. Uh, and I changed, you know, that after that, after the, when I became associate professor, full professor, my research interest started becoming more aligned, even though I still have my industry interest in research, I started aligning my interest more with the PhD students because you need to have some synergy. So I've been very interested in, uh, in, in sharing economy. Uh, I published a paper that's very highly cited in 2008 uh, in Journal of International Management. It was a prospective research agenda paper that's been getting a lot of citations. Uh, and because of that paper, I read a couple of students from different universities look for me so can to help them. Um, I, I published a couple of papers recently in JIBS experiment with different methodologies, which is, it was challenging doing like qualitative work, uh, which is very hard. 
uh, but I did uh, was longitudinal qualitative work. One was uh, in catch-up innovation, where we look at a Brazilian uh, agricultural company in Brazil. How did they were able to catch up with the big multinationals in this? since the 60, the 70, the longitude over a year. Mm -hmm. uh, that was published in GIPS recently. Um, and then also there was another interest paper where I saw a state-owned company from China um, moving into to the Republic of Congo and completely create from scratch the total ecosystem, uh, roads, suppliers, everything created from scratch. And this is another paper published in GIPS a few years ago. Um, those, uh, a bit, the biggest challenge there was like qualitative, uh, looking at uh, longitudinal one company qualitative work. It was a lot of work, but was very, uh, you know, I had a lot of pleasure in doing. It took a long time and it was very nice. Um, Perfect. Uh, about uh, omitted variables or neglected areas in IB research, things we have not covered enough. Uh, what can you say? I think we lack uh, human behavior. We don't look too much at a micro level. Uh, and, and everything that happens at the firm level only happens because we have individuals there making decisions and with their own uh, differences and diversity. Uh, and I think uh, we, you don't see a lot of uh, the application of the role of individual behavior into the into those IB research. We started seeing something now, but still not many. And I think it's very important to go the micro level. I, I'm just working on a paper with a friend on create individual creativity. And it's interesting because it's, you know, I always done research at the firm level. And now we are looking at individual creativity and how that develop competences at the business level. So we look at the multi-level from how the firm individual will have the firm to create competences that will make them more innovative. Uh, so that's a, a, a interesting question. And I think uh, that's a big omitted variable. Um, what else? Yeah, that's what I can think about in the top of my head. Uh, okay. Individual, uh, individual roles, micro level. Uh, well, you mentioned your recent uh, research uh, stream on creativity. Uh, individuals uh, being creative and leading to competence. Uh, how, how do you work? Uh, like, where do the where do you come up with these ideas? Where, uh, in a state of idle curiosity, your mind is wandering. Uh, how do you come up with uh, ideas? Do you work every day? Do you write every day? Uh, well, what's the process like, like for you? I like to take two hours a day to write. Force myself to write two hours a day. You know, every day. Something. If I'm not writing two hours a day, I'm reading something two hours a day. And I take that the block of two hours to keep always reading. And when I mean reading, I don't mean reading uh, academic papers because I think the ideas don't come from academic papers. I, my ideas, the all ideas that I had came from talking to executives. I have a lot of friends executives talking, reading uh, more daily news like uh, The Economist or Wall Street Journal. And I still like to read the actual paper you know, get my hands dirty. <laughs> I, you know, uh, so I think uh, by reading what is happening in the world and try to put it together, things that helps you to come up with re research question. Then of course, when a research question comes up, 
Then you start writing. I always write, in, I have a box, a shoe box that I call idea box. And sometimes I have something, I write something, throw it in there. And then three months later, I look at it. Most of them I throw it away, but then, oh, this is nice, this is nice, I can use. Um, but every time I have something, I throw it in there, right? So I don't forget. Uh, the, the, so by having the, once you have the idea, now you need to go back and see what has been done in the literature. Has anybody explored that topic? Now that's you start your research. You see, the idea comes from, from reading daily news, from talking to, to individuals. And I was very curious. I'm very curious about everything. If I, if I meet a new, uh, if I'm with a group of friends and I meet somebody new that works in the energy, oil and gas industry, I suddenly start asking questions. How do how you make decisions? How you strategize? How you decide to do this business? And from that, those conversations, those readings on a daily basis, come up with research questions that might be interesting. Then I go back to the literature and then I read. And then if I can make sense of the literature, that nobody that there's really a gap there. Now I have everything to start a paper. If not, I just discard the idea and wait for the next one. Um, a student, uh, perfect. A student comes to you and says, and they're at the very early stage. They don't really know what they want to work on. There's no passion at the moment. Uh, they, they want to ask you, because you have a crystal ball in front of you, uh, what will be the next big question for the next five to 10 years in the field? Uh, and they're asking guidance, uh, what to do, what, what to read about. Uh, what would you say about the next five to 10 years of the field? Next five, 10 years of the field, if I would have to tell a student, it's definitely going to be interdisciplinary. It's going to be multidisciplinary. That's not, you know, for many years, I think IB has done research within IB. And even within IB, you have people that do strategy, global strategy, people that do international marketing, people do international finance. Very, everybody has a silos where they stay and they feel comfortable. I think uh, for anybody, and all my students that you train today, I tell them not to be comfortable with that. I give them the, 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 the international business field is going to be more complex, it's going to be more dynamic, and it's going to be, have to cut more across disciplines. Uh, so try to find from beginning something that is interdisciplinary, okay? Uh, and, and what I mean by that is like, okay, if you're going to start how firms becomes more innovative, bring in the individual level to it. Bring, try to look at what neuroscience is telling about how people make decisions. Try to look at the political environment, look at political science, what they decide about the politics of the world, how it's shaping now with everything that is happening between China, South Korea, US. Try to look at those external things just to make sense of something. Of course, for the dissertation, it might work more narrow, but if you start thinking broadly, after you graduate, you will have a bunch of ideas to spread out. Yeah. That we're going to allow you to get tenure because you have a short clock. Once you graduate, the game just started. Now you have five, six years to get tenure. And it's not enough. And more and more people want more publications in top journals. So by, by start thinking from the beginning in the interdisciplinary, even though for the dissertation, you, you, you may have to be very focused on one thing, you already started looking at the periphery of mm -hmm. your research and the cross links with other disciplines. Interesting. I think that's the way I think it's going. Ronaldo, I ask this question to pretty much everyone now. Uh, there's a camp who says uh, globalization is going to pick up again after COVID and the, the pandemic is over. 
or when dependent is over. And there's another camp, they say, well, actually protectionism, uh, isolationism, nationalism, uh, populism is going to be more uh, profound over the next couple of decades. What's your take on it? Well, I think the, 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 the current pandemic really, you know, we always, we, we have been, we have those anti-globalization populism even before the pandemic, okay? But they were not strong. They were pretty much, they were not strong enough to really cause a change in the whole world system. Um, now with the pandemic, you know, you see countries becoming more protective, you know, uh, you know, by countries becoming more protective, the whole political agenda is changing. You know, uh, you know, you see more polarization. You know, you look at Brazil, you look at US, you look at every place you look this, there's very few people in the middle now. Everybody has these extreme views from one side or another. And that takes away debate, discussions, and the way we grow as people and as researchers and scholars is by debating, discussing, and accepting points of view. When you have people in the extremes, that goes away. Now you only have this group here perpetuating what they think and this group here perpetuating what they think and not in the middle. And that's not good for society in general and the world in general. Um, and I think uh, it's gonna be a hard time now coming out of this, this, uh, this pandemic, we're gonna have faced many challenges in the next few years. It's not gonna be easy. But, but um, and of course, all those things are things that need to be incorporated into the IB research. Anti-globalization, populism, we can't be narrow-minded anymore. And there's gonna be no room for narrow-minded. Right, right. Uh, about advice and mentoring, uh, I mean, you talked about uh, Mike Kotabe mm -hmm. and uh, how he was influential. What was the best advice you received from Mike? Or anyone uh, who actually uh, gave you advice and mentoring, what was the best advice you received? Michael Tab was my mentor. He, you know, I say, of course, there were people that gave me advices and I pick up something. But if I have to break down 90% of what I am as a researcher and teacher, came from Michael Tab. 10% uh, came from everybody else that I learned in my career. I think my advice was instrumental in. Uh, in building me how to work. And some of the devices he gave to me that I give to my team. At first I came to him and said, oh, I think I can buy this database so I can test my model. I said, no, you have to do a survey. You have to collect your own proprietary data. That's yours. And once you collect the survey, you have to think about the, the, the papers in the dissertation, maybe one or two more research credits in the future you might have it. So I had to do a survey. Today, a lot of firms don't like survey because you have to have two respondents. A lot of journals need two respondents. It become more complicated. But at the time I did, one respond one respondent per company was okay. So I had to go. He financed me. He went. We went to Brazil together. We visited companies. We interviewed. It took me a year and a half collecting data. Okay, and I think by collecting that data it helped me a lot. Okay. So the other thing is that he always told me that you have to have you have to, to, to have the, develop the ability to be part of the conversation. If you don't understand, you know, once, once I decide to talk on modularity, I had to know who are the 10 biggest players doing modularity. Because I have to be able to go, if you imagine a meeting room, 
with all those 10 people that are working the same topic that you are, you have to be able to go in there, walk in there, and have something to say to them, even if it's a one death, one incremental step. But you have to have tell them something that they're going to say, ah, this is interesting. That is really built on what we already did. Mm -hmm. so, and, and people, they tend not to think about that. They come up with a research passion, they get the data that exists, and they start testing. And then five years later, they find out, well, yeah, there's not 20 people that did the same thing. So if you don't start thinking that from the beginning, you're going to, it's like taking a shortcut and then the shortcut catch you with you, catch with you later. Okay? Yeah, that's right. So, uh, I think Microtab, those two advice that Microtab always gave was very important. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, yeah, this, uh, but I tell my students too that, uh, you know, if you're going to be an academic, you better be able to deal with rejection. Some people are not very good at dealing with rejection. And, you know, for every gyms that I publish, I think I've got rejected two or three times. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so it, it's, it, it, I remember being rejected is hard, and especially in the beginning. After a while, you get used to, but you need, you need to be, build that, that resiliency that allows you to get rejected, take a deep breath, shake it off, and start over. And, and you know, you get really, you know, I remember my first, my first paper for my dissertation got an R&R in, um, in SMJ. And when the R&R came, I'm very inexperienced. I start, you know, responding to the reviewers as, as I, I disagree with them. No, you're wrong. This, I know about this. You don't. It, no, I got rejected. You know, it doesn't work like that. You know, so be, you have to be humble. And you have to deal with rejection. If you don't know how to deal with rejection, you're not going to succeed in this business. And also, you need to be able to build a per interpersonal, intercultural relationships. Um, you know, my some of most of my co-authors I developed by going to the conferences and meeting them in the doctor consortium, then in the junior faculty consortium. You know, you, you need to be able to to collaborate with different people from different cultures, from different countries, from different points of view, um, and, and develop that ability to the people skills. You know, I think people skills is very important. Of course, there are some people that are very successful there that has no people skills in academia, but they they just like super genius. You now, if you get the Academy of International Business, uh, there's three thousand members there. There might be five that are super genius. Ten people that don't need anybody. They do everything alone. They super genius. But those, those are few. Majority of the people work very hard, work alone, get rejected, work hard again, and try to. And then finally, you make one incremental contribution. You're not going to break through. You know, you know, guys like Jay Barnett that invent a different theory, or guys like uh, you know Peter Buckley. You know. Those guys, those guys are super genius. They they develop something new, and I really envy them. And they're very nice. Some of them are my friends, and they're very nice people. But most people, like uh, like normal people like me, we have to build a, a network of collaboration. We have to develop people's skills. We have to have the ability to interact. We have to be able to accept different ideas. We have the ability to. Uh, take rejection at face value, rework, and go one more time for the route. And maybe reject again. 
You know, if you don't develop that idea and get mad, it's it, it, you're not going to succeed for a long time. It's going to be tough. I, I was lucky. My uh, strategy advisor was Jay Barney. My international business advisor was Odette Chankar. I mean, they are at the top of the field in their area. Um, so I was lucky in that aspect. But something you said about uh, being humble and knowing the review process. Review, review process actually is what makes or breaks a paper. Uh, so many papers uh, are uh, discarded because the review process is not handled well. I mean, the, the, the minute you start fighting back with the editors, the, the minute you give back the referees what you think uh, about their knowledge or what you interpret as their knowledge, I mean, that paper is doomed to die. It's... Uh... Look, I, I had a paper, I, I had a paper which I thought was a very good paper and Michael Tabe had thought too, it was a very good paper. Went to three rounds of review in Journal of Management. And after three rounds of review, the editor decided to call, we satisfy all the three reviewers. The editor called another reviewer who questioned something in the paper and the editor reject. Hmm. I was already 100% sure that that was gonna be a publication. And this was like six months before my tenure. Wow. That was really disruptive, but I had to learn, I talked with Tabi and we, I had to recoup and move on, uh, you know. I still got tenure, but it was very risky. My tenure would be a breeze with that paper. Without that paper, it was risky, but I got it. And uh, but you know, if you if you can't lose, you have to stay focused. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, okay. For this. The paper, because the paper was good, and my contact was good, and several people that I know, they were, I think, it was a, a mismanager of the editor. The editor did something wrong. Uh, I mean, there can be many reasons. And one of my earliest, uh, earlier papers, uh, uh, I, I sent it to Jibs, it was rejected. I sent the same paper to AMJ, and after a couple of rounds, really hard work, it got in. And you, you can't say, oh, this is going to be automatically rejected. This is going to be automatically accepted. There's no such thing. It is uh, knowing the review process, handling the review process, uh, a skill on its own that we don't really teach in the schools. There's a lot of patience, a lot of humility, a lot of hard work that goes into it. And every time there's a review, revision, it's a rewrite. And people... Papers, uh, paper that was the first time you submit and the ones that was published, <laughs> it's not the same paper. <laughs> so, I, I, had a, uh, I had one interest review one time that when I got the revisor resubmit, I said, well, great. And then when I started reading the reviewer's comments, I said, this guy rejected me. This guy rejected. It looks like I was rejected by all reviewers, but the editor liked my paper so much <laughs> that he gave a chance, a very a high risk revision. And then we went to the process. The paper became a completely new paper and ended up being published. So you have all these kind of different things that you have to learn how to deal with. Right. Uh, for the sake of time, uh, Ronaldo, what's the question that I should have asked you about Evans? Uh, that one I wrote it down. <laughs> okay. Um, how can we build relationships in academia? You know, right? and find good out, good co-authors. How how you find good co-authors and how you build. And another one that I put here was. How can you find the right balance between research, teaching, leisure, and family? Because the, without the balance, 
it might be very hard to be successful because then you might stress too much on one side. And if you stretch too much on one side, without the balance, you might have a breakdown. Uh, I think I always, I always thought uh, that it's very important for any academic to be uh, a balance between your family, your, your leisure, your phone, things you like to have, your hobbies, the teaching, because it's part of our profession. You know, I don't like when people say, oh, I like to do research, I hate teaching. Uh, you know, it, you know, you build knowledge so you can transfer knowledge. It's part, you know, I don't, don't really agree with that statement. I love teaching. Actually, one thing that makes me proud is like I have a student, a former student that became CEO of a big multinational in Brazil. Um, so that makes me proud. Uh, and then do your research with ethics, moral values, um, resilience, and work hard. So that's important. And, and for the first question, how to build relationships in academia? Well, first thing, you know, luckily it's not the majority, but you go out there and you see some people that become very arrogant, you know? And it's funny because the real smart people like Peter Buckley, Jay Barr, they're not arrogant, they're very nice people. But, you know, there's some people that somewhere in the middle, they start getting good publications and then they start becoming very arrogant and walk with their nose up. They decide what to talk to. And it's really strange, you know. I, I find people that those type of people is very strange. So don't become arrogant. And in order to find uh, uh, good relationships, I talk to everybody in the academy. I go to, go to conferences, join the junior faculty, volunteer to be part of the, some of the leadership committees. Uh, you know, get involved in the, in your community, in the IB, uh, in this, I, I'm strategy IB, so I'm very involved in the SMS and very involved in the AIB. Um, and I volunteer, I was officer several times, I review for journals, I, I do everything and I participate in every possible junior faculty consortium, every social hour. You know, when I go to conferences, I go to see what people are doing, what people are working on, but also to meet people, to, to make new friends, to see what people are working on, to discuss my ideas, to get feedback from my ideas. And then maybe over a beer, you find a co-auto or in the junior faculty consortium. So you're not gonna find a consortium. I, I, I had colleagues that graduate with me. I hate conference. I don't like to travel. I don't like to go to conference. It doesn't make sense for me, okay? Uh, I'm a very social person, I think. Uh, and to find good co-authors is, is not easy because there will be problems. You need how to deal with, you know, when I mentioned before, developing people's skills. You need to be able to deal with bad co-authors. That's gonna be times where there'll be conflicts between co-authors. And because, you know, everybody's working like in a pipeline of four, five, six different papers, okay? And, it, you, and it, the two of you are working together, but then your paper, the paper is first priority for you, but it's fifth priority for the other guy. So you have to really be, I think the best way to, to build relationship with co-authors is to be transparent and be transparent and frank, what the priorities are, how we're gonna conduct this, create deadline, create things and everybody committed to. Everyone's, I never. I was very lucky with my co-authors because we're very transparent. We always did very well. But I know people that had hard times with co-authors. And I know people that hate to work with co-authors, like to do everything by themselves. I don't. Uh, it's a lonely profession. I'm already alone in my office. Alone. I like to be discussed with people. 
And of course, relationships, you know, today with Zoom, it became a little easy because we have meetings at Zoom. But when I started, if you had a co-author in another country, you know, you'll be dealing with emails back and forth. And the written language is not the same as seeing the person's face. Sure. Sure. It's very low context, uh, so it's not the same. Now I think with Zoom, the pandemic brought this technology to us that make, is making it easy for, for co-authorship. That's right. Uh, Ronaldo, uh, thank you so much for your time. I enjoyed this uh, conversation. Answer your question to satisfaction. <laughs> perfect. It was perfect. Uh, I, I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Thank Let me you. add one thing. One thing that I love yes. about academics that I can do until I drop dead. I, I don't <laughs> research and teach until I cannot walk to the school. <laughs> I don't need to retire. Hopefully it will be a long time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, you guys. Thank you. Bye-bye.